Hello and welcome to the Virtue Podcast. My name is Shona Virtue. I am your host. I am stoked that you are here and welcome back if you've been here before. Today's episode is very exciting. I want to get straight into it. But if you have never been here before, this podcast is essentially an exploration of all things health and wellness, the good, the bad, and (laughs) the downright disordered. We use the biopsychosocial model to look at health in a much more holistic way. So we look at the biological, the psychological, and the sociological or, or social. We use a lens that enables us to acknowledge the fact that all of these things interact with each other and impact our physiological and our psychological health and well-being. So you really can't focus on one only which is often what was happening with that biomedical model where it was very much just about the physiological. And now more and more, there is an acceptance that we need to incorporate and acknowledge the fact that there is psychological factors and social factors at play that contribute to our physiology. Now, in addition to this, we also look at things like economic and spiritual wellness as well, because those do play a part. But Thus far into the podcast, I haven't touched much on those just yet, and I will be eventually. But for now, we're going to get on with the podcast. We're talking about stress. Once again, it's a great topic. And more specifically, something known as your allostatic load and allostasis. I'm going to get on with the podcast so that we can dive straight into what the hell that is. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button or that subscribe button, whatever you need to do, because I know that this podcast will change your life. Today, we're going to look at an important and of course, often undiscussed because it's not so sexy health topic, and it's known as your allostatic load. So allostasis refers to the process of maintaining homeostasis through the internal shifting or adapting of our internal systems to match the external environment. In much less fancy terms, it's the way our body shifts between excitability and relaxation in order to match the circumstances around us. In even simpler terms, it has to do with our stress response, that fight or flight or rest and digest response, right? So your allostatic load describes the accumulated strain on the body due to persistent stress and significant life occurrences. Essentially, we're talking about here the accumulated effects of stress on the body. Basically, if you've been through a lot of stress recently, the allostatic load on your body, on your physiology, is going to be high. Now, if you've been through a lot of emotional stress recently, and then you add a bunch of high stress training to the mix, even if that training feels really, really good, right? Because maybe it's psychologically distracting us from the other stress, or the endorphins can sometimes mute some of the pain that we might be feeling from other levels of stress, the allostatic load is going to be even higher. And the implications of this really. So like, why is it a problem? It's a problem because a high allostatic load has been linked with an increase in chronic 
disease, cognitive decline, reproductive difficulties, poor bone health, weight gain, increased rates of aging, sleep disruption, just to name a few fun aspects of a high allostatic load over long periods of time. How do we measure it? How do we know, right? And this is something we're going to unpack a little bit because stress if we're just going on perceived levels of stress, it's too vague. We all have varying degrees of what we think is stressful versus not stressful. We all have different coping mechanisms that can help us to distract ourselves from that perceived stress. But there are ways to measure it. You can measure it physiologically. So as I spoke about in a previous episode, HRV, heart rate variability, which refers to the variations in time intervals between consecutive heartbeats. So it's really not to be confused with heart rate. Often we think of heart rate as something that's like, you know, a beat that's consistent. But in actual fact, heart rate variability is the variations in the time intervals between those heartbeats. Now, what we want is a higher HRV because that typically indicates a healthy, responsive heart that can adapt quickly to varying demands. Whereas a lower HRV, so very low variability in the heart, suggests actually the opposite. Now, HRV is controlled by the autonomic nervous system, okay? And (laughs) this comprises of the sympathetic, fight or flight, and the parasympathetic. Apologies if you've heard me talk about this many, many times. Like I said to you in a previous episode, I do think that it's important to just hear this over and over again so that you really understand that there, it's not just like my nervous system is stressed. It's like, well, why and what's going on there? So understanding that there's two branches is important and one is not better than the other. They both have their role and their place. So we can look at HRV to determine whether someone is in a healthy state in their nervous system or potentially their nervous system their allostatic load is high. Their nervous system is in a chronically imbalanced state. Other ways are cortisol levels. Now, you can get your cortisol levels tested. Cortisol is a stress hormone and you can get it tested through like saliva or blood tests. But the reality is, is that our cortisol naturally fluctuates throughout the day. So it's difficult to know whether there's a fluctuation because there's a natural fluctuation or whether it's fluctuating because of like maybe some caffeine intake, maybe there's some physiological reason as opposed to psychological reason. So cortisol is not necessarily the best measure unless you have the means to be constantly doing it and collecting a whole bunch of data over time. Probably for the most part, we're not going to have that. So at this point, I would say that HRV is still one of the best mechanisms for us. It's just that we're at the mercy of the devices that we're using to measure this. And that's where things can get a bit funky. I talked about this in a previous episode on heart rate variability. So if you haven't listened to that, maybe listen to it after you've listened to this one. So you have a little bit more context. Now, another way is through immune function. Now, immune function, generally speaking, can be indicative of a high allostatic load, right? So so poor immune function. Okay. However, I don't know how helpful that really is in determining what to do, right? Like if I turn around and say, you're sick. You must be stressed. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) thank you for that insight. Maybe some of you who have experienced stress before didn't even know that you were stressed, but your body then got sick. I'm going to tell you a story a little bit later about how that came to help me become more aware of that allostatic load that I was placing on myself. But often, this is what I was mentioning earlier, we can think that we're fine 
because our perception of stress, if we've experienced high stress levels for a long period of time, can become very, very skewed. And we just get used to handling shit. And then our body gives out. <laughs> right? Our body gives out and you're like, where's this come from? Where's this rash coming from? Or where's this sickness coming from? I'm fine. I've been fine for ages. But in reality, you're not because the immune function is somewhat compromised and it's compromised potentially because that allostatic load is high. Now, something that is important to acknowledge is that exercise is a form of stress on the body. When we have high allostatic load, as I mentioned earlier, and then we add exercise to the mix. So let's say we have like a whole bunch of life, significant life occurrences, and then we add exercise to the mix. That exercise is actually just increasing our allostatic load. But is the answer to just stop exercising? Well, I'm going to argue that it's not. And in actual fact, what we need to be doing and engaging with are practices that are going to improve or essentially reduce our allostatic load. And so we're going to use the biopsychosocial model to unpack the ways in which we can actively reduce that allostatic load through physiological, psychological, and social mechanisms, essentially, or let's say lenses. But before that, I think it's a good time for a story. So when I, it was COVID actually, and it was just before I had decided to go back to uni. I knew that I couldn't live in the UK because I would be too far away from my mum. And it was, things were starting to get a bit hectic, not so much in Australia, but they were getting hectic in the UK and things were locking down. Things were looking pretty serious. So I moved back home to Australia and thought, I'll just kind of like weighed this one out and it was winter as well. Now winter in the UK and summer in Australia. So I was like, you know what? I'll have a little summer break and I'll go over and I'll go home. And when I was uh, back at home, I sort of started to get pretty serious with my Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I mean, I'd been doing it already for about a year, but I hadn't taken it that seriously. And I didn't realize at the time that jujitsu became a mechanism for me to ignore some of the areas of my life that I was a little bit unhappy at my romantic relationships, but also just COVID, you know, having to leave the country that I love to live in, in the UK, where my entire business is, was, is, still is, you know, my very close friends and beautiful connections to people that I had formed at that time prior to COVID, I had to step away from. And so jujitsu was a beautiful place for me to put some of that in energy because it was about acquiring a skill. It was exercise. So I would still get, you know, a, an endorphin release afterwards. But because I wasn't paying attention to other areas of my life that I was clearly unhappy in, relationships, you know, what I was going to do about work, all these di differing areas, my study, I hadn't started psychology yet. I hadn't started the, the degree. I was getting more and more unhappy, but I could mute that unhappiness through Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Some would argue that that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are other worse places to put your pain. <laughs> Drugs and alcohol potentially being some of them, gambling, some of the ones that, you know, shout out that are not, not ideal for health later. But nonetheless, I really dove straight in and I gave up so much of my time and my effort and my attention, much to the detriment, not just of my career, but also of my, I would say everything else, actually, relationships and physical health. I was overtraining. I was under eating. 
And I was really addicted to jujitsu. Now, this had severe implications for my body over time. I was very lean. As I said, I was undernourished, under eating. I broke out. I started to break out in acne, but it was a really interesting type of acne. It was all down my neck, my throat, and all across my chin. So that's very like indicative of hormonal acne, but it wasn't like hormonal acne that I'd had a few years prior. This was like really forming like a bit of a rash down my neck and down my body. So it kind of looked half like a rash, half like acne. No idea what it was. I went to doctors, I had tests, I had blood tests, I had all kinds of things to try to understand what was going on. When in reality, when I took a hard look at my life and was like, well, you're under eating and you're overtraining and you're not recovering well. So this is the part of the story that I really want to highlight was that it wasn't necessarily that I was quote unquote overtraining because I had trained way harder than what I was doing. Yes, I was training every day, but you know, when I was a gymnast, when I was a dancer, I had arguably a much more intense training regime and training program. The difference was, was that back then I was recovering from those training programs. Yes, youth played a part, but also, you know, just having more support through nutrition, recovery, arguably not as much psychological stress. Fast forward to now, I'm older. I am not capable of meeting the admin needs to cook enough food, to create enough of nutrient intake um, to support that level of activity. And I was really definitely not trying, I was just categorically not addressing the psychological frustration that I had. And when I took a long, hard, honest look at this, I realized that there were a few things about my life that I needed to change in order to get my physical life to be healthy or in order for my physiology to change. So it wasn't that I needed to necessarily pull back on training, although I did slightly, I needed to actually consider well, what areas do I need to be recovering better in? How can I add to my recovery systems? Because I had no systems in place. I would do a little bit of yoga, a little bit of stretching, but I just found that as soon as I'd come to sit down to do my meditation or to do some kind of breathing practice, all the psychological stress would just come straight to the forefront of my mind that it then caused this behavioral response, which was to avoid stillness practices, to avoid anything that meant that it was all going to come to the surface of my brain. There's a quote, and I'm going to do it no justice. So this quote is, it's a Zen proverb that says, if you don't have time to meditate for an hour every day, you should meditate for two hours. <laughs> because the idea is that essentially, if you feel like you don't have time, if you feel like you need to avoid that actually meditation will in some way facilitate a more productive mind, a more productive approach, better cognition, all of the different things that we keep hearing about meditation. Fast forward to me learning more about the biopsychosocial model or the BPS model and approaching things with that. Yes, meditation is important. Absolutely. Categorically, I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't be in some way, shape or form engaging with some mindfulness practices. But unless you have and are willing to have many, many years of attention to this kind of practice, it can be very, very difficult for meditation to take effect in your life. And if you're currently in the midst of a health issue, like a physiological health issue, 
meditation might not be necessarily the fastest route. (laughs) I don't think anyway. So I think you have to find other mechanisms that are going to help you. And those other mechanisms for the most part have shown me to be addressing your psychology, addressing your relationships, and also addressing potentially some spiritual identity as well. So we're going to use the BPS model to unpack the ways in which we can actively reduce that allostatic load. And obviously these are evidence-based. So let's begin. Physiology, as I've already mentioned, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, whatever you can access in terms of a mindfulness practice. So that may be meditation, but if meditation is not available to you because you do find that you get too active in your mind, a breathing practice may actually be a better option. So slow, deep breathing exercises. And you and I can do one at the end of our of our podcast today, just to really feel the effects of it and how much it can have an incredible impact. And in the show notes, of course, I will share with you some evidence for that and how it can help to improve, not just in a sort of like esoteric wishy-washy, like, yeah, it'll help you relax, come on. It's like, no, no, this has some really clear physiological impacts on the body, like improving HRV, which is that one mechanism that we can kind of be sure, or, or that one data point that we can kind of be sure is having an impact on our allostatic load. It can also be really helpful in improving sleep, which again, we know that sleep disturbances will impact our HRV over time. So we want to try to improve our sleep quality. And one way to do that is through making sure over time that we're engaging in some kind of conscious mindfulness practice, breathing practices being one of them, which will help us to improve that sleep quality. But that's all I want to say about physiology, because sometimes we can get too lost in those elements and ignore the implications our psychology or our relationships can impact our physical health. So I personally don't believe that you can breathe your way out of negative relationships. It may help you to be less reactive, which in turn may improve your relationships, but I do not think that it's going to have the effect that you think it will if you're just constantly ignoring some of the detrimental things you you might be doing in your life and in your relationships or with your psychology and with your relationships. So let's move on to psychology. So within the framework of psychology, today I've decided to use appraisals. Now, a fundamental tenet of the cognitive behavioral model, which I've discussed in earlier episodes, is that emotional disorders are very often the result of inaccurate or unhelpful appraisals. So the way we appraise something, the story we tell about something is obviously in some way going to have an effect on a bunch of things. And we're going to unpack that. So these appraisals, these stories we tell lead to potentially negative emotional distress, which eventually leads to behavioral reactions. Now a behavior then can often lead to an unintended consequence that leads back to reinforcing the appraisal. So it kind of is like something happens to you, you interpret that event and you appraise that particular event in some way. 
And this is based on those underlying belief systems that you have, which we've talked about before. We're not going to talk about it this time. But even if we just acknowledge the appraisal, the story that we tell about that behavior, now that often leads to some kind of emotional response, a body sensation. It might be an anxiety. It might be a feeling of envy or jealousy, or there's a number, any number of emotions that may arise as a consequence to the story that you've told, not just to the event, because the event in and of itself, without any story, is just an event. So you tell yourself a story, that story elicits an emotional response in you, that emotional response yields to some kind of behavior. Now, that behavior might be going to the fridge to try to distract yourself from the sensation, grabbing a snack that makes you feel better immediately. Maybe it's texting someone. Maybe it's texting the person that maybe caused the event in, in initially or caused the appraisal or triggered the appraisal. Right. So whatever event, whatever behavior comes after the emotional response, it's usually in some way, particularly if it's a negative emotional response, some way of trying to rectify that feeling. When in reality, the best thing that you can do is actually understand the appraisal because that's the thing that's causing the emotional sensation. That behavior usually leads to another kind of event. And it may either lead back to, so if you're in some sort of conflict, obviously like someone says something to you or does something, you interpret their behavior as meaning something more. That creates the emotion. That emotion leads to you behaving in some way that may actually create even more of a behavior from that person or a bigger kind of event occurring. And so we get stuck and locked in this cycle. So what we want to do is first identify the way in which we are appraising a potentially triggering event. We want to evaluate and update the relevant appraisal, the relevant story. So you have to ask yourself, would that story that I'm telling hold up in a court of law? Is it fact or am I creating a story out of this event? Reevaluate that appraisal so that it becomes a little bit more helpful and balanced. Experiment with alternative behaviors. So I like to, after I've sort of written out this kind of explanation, I'm like, well, what would have happened if I behaved differently in this situation? If you're going to do your homework this week, it's to do this particular, and it's, it is a CBT exercise that's focusing on appraisals. So on a piece of paper, you're going to write down the event, what happened, the interpretation of that event, the appraisal, we've done something similar, the body sensations that you experienced, the behavior, what happened, how did you react, what did you do? There are so many ways in which to unpack this. Now, when you start to unpack this, you can then start to see what areas things might be cyclical in nature for you and causing you to get stuck in this loop of emotion, behavior, emotion, behavior. And it's not to say that you need to eradicate emotion or change the emotion. Actually, what we're saying is I'm going to change the interpretation of this particular situation. Because as soon as you appraise something in a certain way, particularly if it is someone else's behavior, you are giving your power away to that person. You are giving your emotional response and your behavioral response into the hands of the story that you're telling about that other person's behavior. And you can see how that would lead to you feeling not just stressed, but actually very insecure, very ungrounded. So getting to the bottom of these things can be helpful because over time we start to feel more grounded. We start to feel 
somewhat unshakable because we acknowledge that we are not at the mercy of the events that happen to us, but actually the stories we tell about the events. And it sounds very stoic, but it, it kind of is in a way. There is a level of like pragmatism to this that just helps to separate us from the whirlwind of emotion that is having a physiological impact on our stress response. So give this exercise a go and let me know how it works for you. I would love to hear more about how these sorts of CBT exercises are helping you. Of course, ideally we're doing this in a therapeutic context, but we don't all have the luxury to access that. So the last thing I want to focus on is social. So the social lens. Who are we surrounding ourselves with, right? Once you've done that psychological exercise and looked at appraisals, you can then come back and think, okay, well, if this event continues to happen, if someone else continues to create some kind of trigger in me, yes, I have to take responsibility for the story I'm telling about their behavior. But at what point is potentially that person just constantly not feeling very good to be around? You have to ask yourself one very important question. Are the people that you're spending time with in full encouragement of the person that you want to become or are they in full encouragement of the person that you find yourself to be right now? So just ask that again, right? Are the people that you're surrounding yourself with in full encouragement, do they Do they encourage you to be, to hold yourself to the standard of the person that you are aiming to become? Or are they keeping you locked in a pattern of who you are right now? And that is not to shift blame. We have to take responsibility for where we're contributing to our own downfall, our own demise. But knowing that that state that we were in caused us in some way to attract those relationships around us. And therefore, it may be that the behavioral response to get us out of this negative state that we're in is to actually move away from spending time with those people. Is that always possible? Absolutely not. And that's where we turn to things like appraisals so that those people's behavior and those people's actions and events don't trigger us in the way that they potentially used to. You have to approach it in in two ways. It can't just be the psychological and it can't just be the social. We can't always control the people that are around us, the people that are in our lives. Sometimes we're stuck in that situation and it is what it is. So how do you then control how you behave to those responses? If you were to put equal attention on these elements and then coming back to the biological, looking at your physiology and saying, and then I'm also going to introduce 10 minutes a day of conscious deep breathing practices, well, God damn, God damn, excuse the blasphemy, but I feel like it's justified. You are absolutely going to be well on your way to at least moving yourself away from this high allostatic load. Okay, starting to start basically reduce it. This can lead to all kinds of incredible changes over time that are going to be magical in how they impact your life. But it starts with intricate, and I would say systematic behavioral actions in your daily life that include the biopsychosocial aspects. Should we do a breathing exercise? I think we're ready for a breathing exercise. <laughs> I think we're ready for a break. <sighs> if you're ready to come with me for a breathing exercise, let's take on our two by one breathing practice 
But if you have been listening to these podcasts in succession, in order, then you will have remembered some of the stuff that I talked about with your ribcage positioning so that we are able to utilize the diaphragm in the most effective way. If you haven't listened to that episode on HIV, heart rate variability, then make sure you do later or after this, or maybe quickly listen to it now and then come back to this. I will just give you a brief Cliff's Notes top line information on how we can start to move our posture into a better position for breathing. So before we actually come into the breath exercise, let's just try to round the spine a little bit. And in fact, we'll even just go ahead and take a little seated twist. If you're able to, obviously, if you're in the car, you can't do that. But a gentle seated twist in one direction and in the other direction, just to create a little bit of space around the thoracic musculature, particularly through the back. And then let your body round forward more than you might think is normal. Because what I want to do is focus your attention onto breathing into the back body. So if it's available to you right now, go ahead and close your eyes, empty the lungs, and we'll go ahead and just take a deep breath in, but I want you to picture the back of your ribs expanding outward. So normally we think about chest expanding forward, but I want you to think about your back expanding outward. So take that breath in, feel it expand through the back, hold the breath, and then we'll exhale through the nose. Let it just relax out of you naturally. Inhale again. Feel as though you're taking the breath in through the back body. So everything's sort of really expanding and notice any tension, notice any restriction. Do you feel really stuck when you try to breathe into the back? And then exhale. One more like that to just stretch out that back musculature. And even if you want to go even more rounded, like really try to place your hands on your thighs or your knees, let yourself really slouch forward and then take that breath in, stretching through the back, inhale, hold it, take an extra sip of breath in, see if you can really stretch out that back musculature and then exhale let it naturally release out of you. Okay, so now find a neutral position. So yes, we're rounded, but it's more like we're relaxed. We're not consciously trying to create a big like hump through our back. We're just naturally letting the shoulders relax down by our side. Rib cage is not in a flared position. We're not trying to sit up straight. Just a neutral position with the rib cage. We're going to take a deep breath in through the nose. Hold it. And then open the mouth if it's available to you to do this. Exhale. Let the breath release. (laughs) We'll do it again. Inhale. Hold the breath. And we're going to exhale. But notice I'm making a noise. So there's a slight restriction at the back of my throat. Like I'm trying to fog up a mirror. I'm going to inhale one more time. And then exhale. Good. This time, close the mouth, but maintain that restriction. Inhaling. 
Hold it. Same restriction, exhale. Good. That is Ujjayi breath. And in a future episode, I'm going to be talking about pranayama, breathing practices, so that we can do them together. We can understand the mechanisms behind them. And I can talk you through some of the research around pranayama. It's obviously mixed because it's hard to get high quality uh, research here, but there's more and more emerging, even in the field of neuroscience as well, looking at the effects of pranayama exercises. These come from yogic philosophy on our brain, on our cognition, on our physiology. So I will talk about them in that one, just so that you have a mental note. It's called Ujjayi breath. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me, for lending me your ears. (laughs) I have really enjoyed talking about this. If you haven't subscribed already, please do. And if you haven't shared this with someone, then please consider sharing it, obviously to support the, the actual podcast itself, but also because sharing is caring. I think, you know, sharing things that we've found impactful in our own life can be incredibly loving. Actually, it's like a beautiful love language to be like, this podcast really helped me in this way. And I think it will help you too. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be like a social media share, even though, of course, I appreciate that. But even just like telling your auntie, telling your, (laughs) telling your friend with benefits, do it. It'll help. Thank you. And I'll see you soon.